Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. Michael, how have you been since last week? Oh, and I'm alive and kicking, Gary. Let's leave it at that. Or should we leave it at that because that's the best you can hope for? Or? It's not the best I can hope for. I'm hopeful that it will be better. I had a little bit of a dose, let's say, I, and there, but I'm now, rec- I'm now recovering and... Uh, it's and the rain has gone away at least for today so it's bright and sunny and we're all feeling terribly well just remember michael even if there is no hope there need not be despair yes gary thank you for sharing that i'm sure the listeners appreciate it precisely as much as as much as i do misery is a choice and despair is a sin michael despair is a sin against the holy spirit the holy what <laughs> despair is the sin against the holy spirit the only sin that cannot be forgiven although yeah Please, go on. No, I have absolutely no intention of going on. Absolutely none at all. Please, tell me what we're going to be talking about today. Well, I mean, I thought we were going to talk about the news, but now I'm transfixed by this discussion of Catholic theology and the place of despair in it. Yeah, I think we had enough Catholic theology in the last one. When you, I, I, I know immediately when I've said something, and you say, the way you either react or you don't react, that I think, oh, that's going to be the tagline. And I made it perfectly innocuous, but I thought, a helpful analogous observation that in Catholic theology there is something called the or there is an idea which says something can be evil but not sinful. And lo and behold, I look at the, what the tag for the web for the podcast is up on all the on the sites. It's that. It's like on another occasion. I, I almost don't want to mention. It, I happened to make the observation that Jesse Owens got his medals, and I knew because I heard the snort that the little head was going. And there, what did I see? Even Jesse Young got his medals. Michael, it sounds like you're complaining about me recognising your contributions to this show. And I thought you'd be happy. Is that what you thought, Gary? Is that what you're doing? It's recognising my contribution. Very good. Okay. I had misunderstood what you were doing. Now that you have corrected my understanding, I am much happier. I'm sorry. Do you not want your work front and centre on this show? Are you not proud of your work, Michael? Gary, you are pushing me towards despair. (laughs) You really are. Can we just start? Please. Just what do you mean? start. Just start. We've started. All of this is going to be on the live recording. You know, they don't do this on the other. You know, Sarah and John McGurk, they don't do this. They just, they have pleasant chats and they agree with each other. It's not an abusive relationship. Anyway. So to begin with, there is just a heads up that there will be quite an interesting, I think, story coming up. Maybe over the weekend, could be the start of next week. Uh, the Far Right Observatory, which are an organisation which is, of course, state funded and which is now called the Hope and Courage Collective, Michael. No! Yes. You're making that up. No, no, that's actually their name. The Hope and Courage Collective. Ah, oh, that is brilliant. I love that. The Hope and Courage Collective. A couple of their members who are, you know, very into uh disclaiming far-right misinformation. The war between Israel and Hamas has driven them insane, and they're currently just retweeting known vectors of misinformation because it agrees with their side. It's quite funny. It's this, you know, this, this very scholarly, staid presentation, and then one thing happens, and they just go off the reservation, screaming and throwing their clothing about the place. <laughs> so anyway, they had, they had a, the, the, the hope... That's brilliant. Sorry. The Hope and whatever collective uh, had a meeting when, where, what happened? Yeah, so the the Good Times Collective uh, were in the doll. (laughs) They were in the AV room. (laughs) 
Patrick Costello, the Green TD, invited them in to give a talk on something or other. And of course, we uh, we have all of the information about what was discussed at that, and we will be putting a piece out on it, uh, as I said, either tomorrow or probably Monday or Tuesday at the latest. So do keep an eye out for that. It's good to know what these people are saying when they think they're amongst friends and in a place where they cannot be overheard. It's my favourite type of journalism, Michael. The far right observatory, I, people who have listened to the podcast before will, will have heard me talk about this before, but for anybody who, who is new, I I, I do want, I, I, I want to I'll repeat it again. It, because it, the parallel to me is just so wonderful and perfect. I was told by um, an economic historian who was uh, close to the a big fan of Adam Smith and had studied in Edinburgh and therefore had had an interest in Edinburgh around the time of Smith. And, and he, he told me the story, which may even be true, Gary, that there was uh, at one period, I would imagine in sort of the beginning of the 18th century, uh, an organisation, a society of gentlemen, which was dedicated to the security of the nation and of the people. And therefore, they had decided they were going to keep all of the Catholics in Edinburgh under strict observation. They were, in fact, a, a, a papist observatory, if you like. And they would, uh, because they knew the papists were inevitably going to be up to bad things and they, would, they could lead to terrible things happening. So they have to keep them. The problem was, Gary, that uh, there were, we'll say, 14 members of the association and there were only 12 Catholics in Edinburgh at the time which meant that sometimes not everybody had a Catholic to follow. And I really do think that the far-right observatory in Ireland is much like that, that there are lots of people who are either in it or friendly to it, supportive of it. It gets money um, from all sorts of places, I'm sure, and all for, for this fine and important work. But there just isn't enough far-right activity to go around. And I suspect that even if everybody was given a far rightist to follow or to observe, that every that somebody is going to be left out, Gary. Somebody won't have their far rightist of all of their own. Because as you have observed before, the problem in Ireland is that you have a, a situation where the demand for outrage far exceeds the local supply uh, for this kind of sort of old-fashioned neo-Nazi, neo-fascist activity. Now, of course, there is a way you can solve that problem, Gary. You can increase the supply. Now, you can increase the supply by behaving in such a way that you actually create real people on the far right. Or you can simply redefine what you consider to be far right. And I think that's probably, at a sort of marketing level, a much more effective way of dealing with it. And I think we've seen that happen in real time in, in Ireland in the last year or so, that what has become far right is simply, it's an economic problem. We had a problem supply, so we've expanded the supply. That's why people come to this show, Michael, for the economic analysis of the far right. Absolutely. Uh, you forgot the third way that you can actually increase supply, by presenting the people who exist as being far more successful and effective than they actually are, and then basically becoming cheerleaders for them in your attempts to ensure the continued organisation of your own group and its funding. Not to say that the uh, Let the Good Times Roll Collective does that, but <laughs> it's hard to mock their name because it's already there. Yeah, it's come, it's like, it's, it's pre, it comes pre-satirized. Yeah, like, it's just, it's, it, they've kind of put me in an awkward position. Like, I want to mock it, but it's just, 
It's there. It's like when um, the the writer of The Thick of It was asked why he stopped writing about British politics, and he just pointed to when uh, Labour under Ed Miliband had etched all of their promises into like this two or three metre high stone tablet. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and said, well, how do you beat that? It's true, it's true. It's a, it's a, I don't know, the name, it could be the name of a, of a, of a, a vegetarian restaurant run by anarcho-syndicalists. It actually sounds like one of those hippie communes that you would have yeah. in the 70s where eventually everyone would fall under the control of a charismatic cult leader and they'd all kill each other. Because, you know, the aliens were flying over because Haley's Comet was there or something like that. And it would all be very well-meaning, but it would end up with a lot of dead children. Yeah, and a lot of people wearing purple tracksuits or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Still time. <laughs> Still time, indeed. So anyway, that's that's a story for the for the listeners to be looking out for, you're saying? Yes. Um, so we had that. We had another one this week, which again involved a grip reporter getting access to somewhere they're not meant to be. And, you know, taking notes or whatever it is we do when we go to these places, Michael. Can't talk too much about that. But it's the, as I said, it's the funnest type of, uh, of reporting. We ended up uh, getting Matt Tracy onto a call that uh, Revenue was having with Belong To, the LGBT charity. Now, Belong To have been an interest of ours since a story we did a while ago where we found that, um, actually, I think I and Fatma Gunning wrote the story. Uh, I don't actually recall because most of the stories about these kind of NGOs I end up involved in in some way and they all kind of blur together. We found that Belong To had been telling uh, teachers and youth workers to lie to parents under certain conditions. Uh, Although we must again say, Michael, that Roderick O'Gorman did not agree with our classification that telling someone explicitly to lie constitutes an instruction to lie. So we do have to remind people of that. And that came up during this seminar that belonged to or having with these revenue staff. You know, you think you're safe, Michael. You think that revenue staff, you wouldn't have anyone there who might read anything that Grip had written. But, you know, as you and I know, Michael, there are many crypto-gripped readers. Oh, indeed. You have to be very careful who you're talking to. Yeah. And before you know it, you're, you're bringing them in as maids and they're stealing your children and baptizing them. There was a, I, this is nothing to do with anything, but it's, it's just a story that amuses me. There was a, a historian uh, who was a member of the Norbertine Order. He was a convert, Scottish man called Caddock Layton. Very brilliant, very brilliant man. I think he ended up teaching, lecturing in, in university in Turkey, but he was in Maynooth for a while. And in the summer of when I was doing my uh, finals, we used to have to eat in the lay professor's refectory. So he was there and there was another guy who was doing some kind of, I don't know, a licentious or a doctor's, who was a liberal, very liberal clerical type. And Caddock was not, Gary. Caddock was very much not a liberal. Caddock had very deep reservations about certain elements of the post-Vatican II church. Anyway, in a glorious moment, the, 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 the liberal cleric said, Caddock, you're nothing but a crypto-fascist. To which Caddock replied, why, Jerry, there's nothing crypto about my fascism. So it was brought up and belonged to, uh, said that that was not true, that that was part of a wide-ranging campaign by the far right to discredit them. Actually, I'm not sure if they said it wasn't true or if they just jumped to far right uh, narrative. Right. Which could actually be questionable in and of itself. But then they 
closed by making a comment about Enoch Burke and why Enoch Burke had been fired. Now, we did originally have that, what exactly was said in the article that we put up, but the Burke family asked that we remove it because they felt it was clearly defamatory. Now, we had noted in the piece that it did not, to the best of our ability, uh, or did not seem to the best of what we knew to be true, but they asked that we remove it, and we did, uh, as a show of good faith. But it might get belonged to into a bit of trouble. It may also get revenue into a bit of trouble because they let it be said and made no attempt to stop it. We reported it because we felt, I mean, belonged to as a state-funded organization. It's talking to civil servants. It's got links into many, many of the departments. And if they said it here um, about Enoch Burke or really about any private citizen, there would then immediately be a question of, okay, well, is that the first time they've said that? Or is that the line they are taking with all of the departments? I mean, exactly how far have they spread this? And so we reported it on that basis. It'll be interesting to see what comes of that. There was also a load of other weird claims that, I mean, you want to be generous and say perhaps we're not false, but definitely did not, should we say, give the full story, Michael. I'll put a link to the story below. Um, it's an interesting read, and Matt's a pretty decent writer, so why not spend some time reading that instead? Yeah. The war, by the way, uh, the is a really Hamas war, and more accurately, the information system around it and what's being said by each side has, I think, gone exactly as we said it would. It wasn't hard to predict what was going to be the outcome in this case, or in wider and other discussions about information, disinformation and online activity, etc. I mean, but I was saying to you before, what I think, if nothing else, the last week has shown us is, and I'm sure that the opposite lesson is the lesson that will be taken out of it by our betters, that the idea of getting involved in some kind of regulatory system for disinformation is just going to be a nightmarish failure. And yet, why? Okay, there are two examples that just sort of leapt out at me if we talk. The first and the most obvious one, the one that's been most discussed, is the case of the Baptist Hospital, right? So the Baptist Hospital where we, the, the news hit immediately. Baptist Hospital had been hit by an Israeli missile and it was 200, then 300, then 500 people had been killed. There were stories, ongoing stories, about bodies being pulled out of the rubble, that the hospital had been destroyed. This was reported by the BBC. It was reported by the New York Times. It was reported all over the world. and. The reporting was too, it wasn't always clear that the reporting was based simply on a statement by Hamas. It wasn't Hamas alleges, Hamas states, but rather it wasn't even, at the times it was that it was the the ministry, the health ministry, the information, and then it was people connected. But it was to the casual or the casualish observer, it just seemed like this was a fact. This was a story. Now, that story started, it would seem to many people, to unravel. Now, I'm not say, I would say, Gary, at this stage, the number of people, that there are going to be a number of people who 
would say that, for example, when the United States comes out and says that they're the uh, the defense uh, Department of Defense had access to electronic information, to tracking, to satellite imagery, and to other forms of intelligence, which led them to believe that, in fact, it was not um, uh, an Israeli attack on the hospital, but rather it was a failed attempt to launch a missile by Islamic Jihad into Israel that had caused the damage. But then it continues. Then we have the story is not only about the fact that it wasn't the missile from where we had said that it had hit the hospital, but then in fact that the missile hadn't in fact hit the hospital at all. That the missile had in fact hit the parking lot beside the hospital that had done some damage to the hospital. And this was now being reported at the same time when other news organizations were were still running stories saying bodies are still being taken out of the rubble. The Euronews two nights ago was still running a story talking about the num hundreds of people uh, dead and the numbers were still uh, hard to establish. Now, I, I'm sure there are people who will be profoundly skeptical of the intelligence assessments given by the Israelis, by the British, by the United States. And they were saying, I'm sorry, that's just propaganda. Why should we believe these things as well? Leave that on the side. Then, Gary, you're, have, you've seen the stories about the Greek, I'm not sure if it's the Greek, or I think it's a Greek Orthodox church in Gaza. Yes. Church destroyed, then yes. church damaged, then yes. church scuffed. And so I, I went online and I tried to find, I, I, I was looking at two stories which had appeared simultaneously. One which was saying, church destroyed, then another which was saying church was damaged, another which was saying that the IDF themselves had said that a wall had been blown out, and then another which said, this is a picture of the church right now. And then there were another, which had another picture of a church, and then it reminded me of a story, an allegation which was that the, the New York Times had put a photograph of the destroyed hospital on its front page, which wasn't in fact a picture of the hospital at all. My, my point is not who I believe or who I don't believe, or rather what happened and what didn't happen. My point is, how the hell, in a rolling news cycle, are you going to have a system whereby the state or some functionary of the state is going to come in and, in a, like Solomon, is going, to, is going to be completely free of any kind of prejudice, is going to be completely free of any kind of bias regarding who they are more likely to believe or disbelieve. So are they, they're not going to regard Hamas as more or less reliable than the Israeli government. And then you're going to ask, well, is that a reasonable position to take in the first place? And you're going to have stories which will potentially be suppressed or repressed on the basis that this is different. And then two days later, then you're going to discover, oh, actually, we got that wrong. And I don't. Nate Silver uh, uh, tweeted out. It, it was interesting. And I think it was interesting because, because it was Nate Silver, a comment about an American uh, journalist who has won the Walter Cronkite Prize, who specialises in disinformation. That's his thing. But uh, uh, Silver's comment was uh, there was a critique of this particular journalist, uh, which he, he retweeted. He said, this is a particularly good critique of America's favorite disinformation reporter who has an unfortunate little habit of consistently spreading disinformation that confirms his political priors. 
Nate Silver, for those who don't know, is a famous pollster. And Ben Collins, who is the journalist he's been talking about, I have never met, but from reading his work, I will be of the general opinion that Ben's primary problem is that he's not actually terribly smart. Not just in relation to this issue, I mean generally. No, Nate Silver is not a man of the right, I would say. Nate Silver is a man of, he's, I would say, a sort of classic middle-of-the-road kind of Democrat. Um if that makes any difference in this context. But Gary, we all have biases. We are all come to stories with our own preconceptions and prejudices. And we have a tendency we for towards confirmation bias. We are far more likely to see and to and to discover good evidence supporting the thing that we are more likely to believe that we are going to find something which is going to undermine what we think is more likely, the most likely explanation of a situation. Let's take the Irish Times headline on this when it originally went up. Uh, Hundreds feared dead and many trapped in rubble after strike on Gaza hospital. Yeah. Which accepts as, now it mentions that Israel and Hamas are trading blame for exactly what happened, but it accepts the death figures. Now, there are, multiple problems with reporting on any conflict and actually when i was studying journalism my particular interest was conflict journalism so this is an area i'm pretty familiar with there's always great difficulties with reporting on wars there are always restrictions placed on who you can be with oftentimes they'll be in a place where you might not speak the language or where you may need someone to get you access to things which means you often rely on locals one of the particular difficulties with reporting in Palestine, is that there is effectively a homegrown industry of cameramen and things like that who media organizations work with who are not working for Hamas but are aligned with Hamas. Now, in this particular war, you also have the Israeli government putting restrictions on what can be reported. So this is not just one side is letting you say whatever you want and the other is trying to lie to you. Both are trying to control the flow of information. A story like this when it broke out, it was immediately clear that there was not enough information for this to actually have been reported as if anything had happened. It wasn't just that the facts were unclear. It was that it was unclear if anything at all had happened. And there were there were a number of things with this story which would be immediately questionable. Firstly, the claim of how many had died. You can look at kill counts in other Israeli attacks And you would have immediately seen that this did not fit with that pattern. It was just too large a debt toll. The other thing is the debt numbers came incredibly quickly. Israel is still finding bodies from when Hamas went in. So for someone to say, oh, there are 500 people dead, very, very quickly, is deeply suspicious because an explosion powerful enough to kill hundreds of people is going to be quite difficult to determine how many people have died because, in, not to be too uh, explicit here, a lot of those bodies aren't going to be in one piece. Now, the thing was that a number of people did observe that the numbers seemed to be very high, and it took them a little bit, of, a little bit too much time to to, uh, to start wondering about the speed at which the numbers were arrived at. But that was actually used in a sense as a confirmation that it was, in fact reasonable to think it was an Israeli attack because the, the reason the numbers were so high was because the Israelis attacked it because it was being used as a munitions depot 
And what had happened was that the record, the rocket had, in fact, the missile had hit munitions and the munitions had blown up and had created, uh, had caused these terrible casualties. But that leads back to, to the, even more so to your previous point. Well, if that was the case, well, then how do you get to the numbers so quickly? How can you count these? Because if that's the case, then the whole place is falling on. But in the midst of all this, then we discovered that all of this rubble doesn't exist at all anyway. Well, that, that's the thing. You get to the morning and photos are showing that the hospital is still standing. The parking lot is damaged. It's also clear from the parking lot that more than likely that was not an Israeli weapon because you have this relatively small crater. Most of the damage seems to have been done by uh, it's, it's burning as opposed to an explosive. Whereas even if that was some sort of airburst weapon, you would have seen much, much more damage which would support the Israelis' claim that basically what happened is a rocket undershot, as many of the rockets fired out of Gaza do, hit, and then basically it had a large amount of fuel in it, the fuel ignited, and killed people. And there was some amount of death. Now, even putting that aside, I, I don't think... What I've seen does not indicate the hundreds of people were killed in this. I think it'd be basically impossible to figure out how many people were killed in this, but from the damage scene, there's no way hundreds could have been killed by that. There is one thing that should have immediately indicated that everything was not as it was said to be, and that that is this. With these sort of things, one of the primary ways that they will be investigated is the collection of fragments of the weapon. So when you have, whether it's a missile strike or a rocket strike or bombing or whatever, the actual housing does not disintegrate. It'll be scattered around the place, but you can find parts of it. And you can sometimes find quite substantial parts of it. But you can use that to determine what weapon it was and from that who fired it. Israel wouldn't have that on hand. It's Hamas's territory. They would have that on hand. So why, if it was an Israeli weapon, would they not have immediately shown that? Because that would be seen as conclusive proof that it was an Israeli weapon. Now, at this point, too long has passed for that to actually be treated as an absolute confirmation anymore, because with the amount of Israeli rocket attacks that are actually happening, you could just take something from somewhere else. Yeah. But when that didn't come out, when the death toll was far beyond what one one would have expected, and where basically no one seemed to have confirmation on the ground, you do have to question why it was published. But that's the thing, isn't it? You had no confirmation on the ground. If all of these, not dozens, but potentially hundreds of news organizations, there wasn't a, a single one that had somebody there who could physically go to the site and look at it and say, this happened, or more to the point, this didn't happen. They just, they took a press release from somebody connected to Hamas and they ran with it. And that seems bizarre. But listen, my my my. My point isn't really about what happened, who is responsible, who isn't responsible for whatever happened. Because truthfully, while I have come to a conclusion about what my strong opinion is about what happened, I don't know if I would like to say at this stage, simply by looking on the internet and reading the various news sources and the various commentators, etc., and the government statements from various governments and authorities, I wouldn't say that I am 100% certain that I know what happened. Um, and you might say, well, you, we, we, we never can 
really be in that situation where we're talking about something which isn't happening next door. But I have a strong opinion, but we don't know. What, 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 if you establish, like say the EU would like to, and other countries around the world have, somebody whose job it is to go on the internet and control information and control news information and control disinformation, what they're effectively going to do is they're going to make they're going to make mistakes, but they're going to it's it's like they're going to have some well, in theory, not probably in practice, but in theory, they're going to have the capacity to apply some kind of papal imprimatur, papal infallibility. This is what happened. This is not what happened, and then it'll be wrong, and then you'll be left with this an institution which has power, power to censor, power to sanction, but with that has actually got no authority because it has no nobody has any faith with it because it will have made mistakes and nobody will actually believe it but it will still have that power to sanction and to censor rather than just say listen it's the fog of war and truth is the first casualty of war etc make your own minds up and also by the way just take a couple of days and we'll find out just take some we don't have to know everything four minutes after it happens we don't have to come to an opinion, a 100% certain opinion, four minutes after something has happened. Well, there you, you raise an interesting point, because the reason why people like the Irish Times and like uh, will get this up before they can verify certain things is because they have a commercial interest to do so. Because if you are the first with a story up like this, or you know the first in your region, it, it's worth a substantial amount of money to you. It's, it's just much more impactful. Mm -hmm. However, Michael, RTE did exactly the same thing. And the BBC. And the BBC, who don't theoretically have that commercial incentive. So clearly it's not entirely the commercial incentive. Now, RTE also basically presented the views of Hamas without actually saying, oh, by the way, this, this information is from Hamas. So I believe they, um, John McGurk reached out to them and they, uh, they accepted it shouldn't have happened. That they yes. have done it incorrectly, which is very nice. I think one other thing that's worth pointing out is something that might actually be useful if people are interested in following this war and in following news on it. Because this is an area I'm familiar with, I am familiar with people I know of who are um, not ideologically committed to either aspect of this war or are committed to one side or the other, but are what I would consider to be exceptionally good professionals where that doesn't matter. So if you are interested in something like this, I would recommend someone like Nathan Ruser or Russer, I'm not sure how that's pronounced, who you can find him on Twitter. Um, he works for a the Australian Strategic Policy Institute. He is very much, I think, on the side of the Palestinians. He does not have a lot of time for Israel, but he has done a very good analysis of most of the things here. He did a lot of really great work on concentration camps in China for Uyghurs. Um, but he is absolutely worth looking at. As I said, I th he's, he's ideologically um, supportive of the uh, Palestinians, but his view is just, it is ridiculous to claim that this was the Israelis, basically. It doesn't match anything about it. And there's full breakdown of why that is and geolocation and explanations of different types of munition and the like. Um but yeah, that's an actual, if you are interested, he is actually someone who is helpful to follow. And if Israel does do something, I'm sure he will also cover that quite fairly. It's funny, you should, well, funny, you, you mentioned the uh, 
the uh, genocide, covering the, 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 the camps in China. I see Claire Daly has been doing, sending around a hashtag, stop the Gaza genocide. Obviously, the Israelis are much better at genocide than the Chinese are, because if you remember, she commented that how bad the Chinese were at it. The population of the Gaza Strip has doubled, I think, since the mass came to power. Right. Which, if you're trying to commit genocide, not to be flippant, but, uh, you know, genocide is the destruction of a people. And if the people double in the time you're conducting that genocide, you have some efficiency issues. He said not being flippant. Anyway, speaking of... uh Information decided on and uh, disinformation and commentary. Commentary from places where we don't expect commentary. Uh, our dear president has been out center, making all sorts of comments about all sorts of things that you wouldn't normally associate with somebody with the constitutional limits that the British president has. Well, he did show a um, commendable restraint in answering one question, Michael which was when he was asked by Naomi uh, O'Leary if he considered Russia to be a colonist power. And he started by saying, I don't want to avoid your answering your question, and then proceeded to very strongly avoid answering that question. He, the question was, if the, the Russian Empire is a colonial power, hmm, that's a tricky one. I mean, it's tricky being an empire, Gary, which it is, without being also colonial. You would have thought that the president, who we know is, thinks that colonial is very bad, very, very bad indeed, would have strong opinions about Russia and its colonial present and its colonial past. I enjoyed his thoughts that uh, von der Leyen had outstepped her role. <laughs> yeah, uh, David Quinn's comment was the obvious one, but I still thought it was to the point the the, the phrase kettle and black. I, I don't think he was wrong, by the way. No, no, he wasn't wrong. It's just a sort of, it's a, how dare you do the thing I've been doing for years. Yeah. Um, I actually, I, I this might be a somewhat controversial statement, Michael. I actually don't really care when Michael D. Higgins oversteps his, um, should we say constitutional norms, Michael? Because you know how I am about norms. Yeah. Um, For the very simple reason that, the government lets him, and they perhaps should not do that. But, you know, if they're just going to let him because they're too weak to stop him, well, then why should I be offended? Because he's not going to stop, so there's no point thinking anything negative about it, other than that it indicates an absolute loss of control by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael, same as it has been for a long time. I have reached a point where I have come to a kind of a stoic resignation, he was at times capable of driving me into a frothing rage. And you know what? None of my feelings or emotions were going to ever affect his decisions or his actions. And all it was causing was discomfort to me. So why would I, why would I bother? He has, the, he's talked, he refused to make comments about the Russian colonialism. He made commentary about the war in Gaza and in Israel, which were far, far beyond his purview. And it, as several people pointed out, it meant that if it had, it looked at least for somebody from the outside that Ireland had two foreign policies. Why it would make any difference, in fact, to the, to the rest of the world, what Ireland for the Irish foreign policy was, you know, that's a fair point. He's, he's, he's got into the business of, of 
critiquing the flood management systems in Cork. I mean, he's really getting into the nitty gritty of it now, isn't he? But you know what? You're right, Gary, at this stage. The only thing that still has the capacity to get under my skin is when I meet people and they just, they tell me what a wonderful guy he is. Isn't he fantastic? And he's so great. He's such a great little man. He's a great president. And I go, what are you talking about? Let's make something, I think, clear to people who are not perhaps as involved in politics as some others. On a personal level, he is well known to be awful to deal with. I mean, horrendous to deal with on a personal level. He's been that way for years. He's a nightmare. So I do kind of admire his ability to have such a very wholesome public image when even the media who deal with him know he's not that way inclined. He's never been. He's never been pleasant to deal with. He's also, and this is really important, a very bad poet. I think we need we need that on the record. He's a bad poet. And also, he's an intellectual, Gary. He's an academic. He's an intellectual. God almighty, the shallowness. Has Michael D. Higgins ever said anything that you thought showed an insight or an understanding beyond that that might be seen by a 20-year-old college student who got really into Venezuelan politics? I would have thought that anybody who was 20 years old and got really into Venezuelan politics would have come to a whole set of conclusions about Venezuela, which would be very different to Michael D. Higgins. But I, I, I think I know what you mean. He may well have done, Gary, but I, I, none have come to my attention. He may have said some brilliant and insightful things about the management of the Pampas. I have no, I don't know. But he, I've never heard him say anything that wasn't so banal and shallow and predictable. But he's got a dog, Michael. He's got, yes, he, he had two dogs. And his dogs like him, so he must be a good guy. I think it's because... As I said, I don't mind him overreaching his authority, and I admire his ability to control his PR image. But I think it just, it is a manifestation of how totally unserious we are about the presidential office, that we allow it to happen the way it does, both that he can just breach constitutional norms without any issue, and that he's able to present a view of himself which is not just false, but no one by nearly everyone who has any reason to deal with them, to be false. I mean, he does actually believe the things he says about left-wing economics. I'm talking about his personal demeanour. Yes, I understand that. Also, bar one or two lonely voices crying in the wilderness, the abject refusal of the Irish mainstream media to call him out and to say, you know what, I'm not saying that you're wrong, Mr. President, but have you ever heard him being asked? Have I mean, and I, he may well have been. It's perfectly possible he has been. And I just didn't hear it. But have you ever heard of him being asked? But Uthran, do you think that this is something you should be commenting on, or do you think this is? Do you think you should have said that? Is this appropriate? This, I think, is the actual issue here. And good work, I think, Naomi O'Leary, a citizen or a journalist who I have. I don't think ever said a nice thing about and probably said a substantial amount of negative things about given what I think of her usual reporting. But she is the only journalist I can think of who asked Higgins an actual question that 
everyone knew he would find difficult to answer, because Higgins has a very particular view, and he's very old school in that. I think the problem with Higgins is this. He wants to make political pronunciations, but he doesn't want to have to ever explain them or anything of that ilk. And that's what he will actually do to the, or what should have happened to the office of the presidency once he started doing these things. It should have just become an openly political office, which journalists demanded answers from, as they would any other politician. I mean, Michael, this is a man who, if you recall during the last election, he was asked to um, reveal certain spending things that had happened when he was in his first term. And he said he would, and then released a document which was so... (laughs) I wouldn't even say it was bad. It was a piss take. It was the sort of thing you write when you know that you're never going to be asked about it and that your word doesn't matter. I mean, you could look at it and say, well, technically, yes, he did do what he said to do, but not in any real sense. And not in a way that even that anyone could have thought was sufficient. I do think you're wrong, though, when you say that he, he that he doesn't expect or he doesn't want to be questioned about it. I think that Michael D. Higgins would be perfectly happy to hold five-hour symposiums on what Michael D. Higgins thinks and why Michael D. Higgins thinks them. I think that you might lose the will to live after around two and a half hours of it, and that's being generous. But I think he, Michael D. Higgins being unwilling to set to expiate in great length and detail about why he thinks what he thinks. I think that's unlikely. I didn't know. I never said he wouldn't be willing to talk about what he thinks for <laughs> hours. I said he wouldn't want... Well, actually, I'm not even sure if I said it there. But I don't think he would want to be questioned about what he's saying and the technicalities of it and where there might be problems with it. And one of the reasons there is that Michael D. Higgins doesn't take being questioned by people he thinks of as less than him terribly well, historically. So it might actually be quite illuminating to the public to see Michael D. Higgins actually have to deal with a journalist who had some specific questions and was not willing to show our president the deference he feels is due to him. I think that might be quite interesting for the public. I think it'd be lovely. I don't think it would be terribly surprising for anyone else, but it might be good for the public to see that if you vote for a person because he's kind of cute and has a dog, you deserve everything you get. Do you know what? I would pay money. I would pay money to see Michael D. Higgins being questioned in detail by Jared Casey. I think that would be good. That would be good fun. One of them would go for the other, and I'm honestly not sure who'd go first. Um, maybe Cormac Lucy, if you want to sort of go to more sort of in the detailed nitty gritty of the economic stuff. But I think Jared Casey. Yeah, I, I think it could well end up in in some kind of violence. The dog might get involved, but I think it would be good entertainment. And if it was being streamed, you know, for fourteen ninety nine, I would seriously consider paying that. One day, Michael. One, One day. day. Yeah. After we've outlived him. If we, yeah, if you might do. Well, I mean, Michael. You know, they say don't speak ill of the dead, so I've got to get it all in now. This is true. Absolutely. Pre op a pre obit. <sighs> On the plus side, he's been totally ineffective, so once he's dead, he'll be forgotten and he'll leave no mark. So, that is comforting. You see, I don't agree. I think he and his ilk have been very effective. I think the long march through the institutions has occurred. You start adding things like, and his ilk, yes, but he on his own. Ah, well. None of us are on our own, Gary. No man is an island. Ask not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. What about an archipelago? 
<laughs> I'm not going to use the word that you used about Michael D. Higgins, but that's the word. I, that is the word I'm thinking about right now. Yeah, yeah. Then we'll have to run that one by the editorial board. Oh, I think so. Okay, I think we will leave it at that, Michael. We will. Be I think back. we will. We will yeah. run. We will be back next week. All Have the best. a good one. <laughs>